right, I'm in Philippians chapter 3, reading a famous passage of Scripture. I want you to listen close. If this passage doesn't speak to you, I don't know what will. It ought to be powerful in everybody's life. This is the apostle talking. Verse 12, chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Press on. Press on. He says it twice. When it's in there twice, he wants us to get it. Paul is writing this in a time of trouble. He is in change, as he's already said in this letter. He is facing possible execution. The church at Philippi, the people there who love him, know this to be the case. Epaphroditus has come and gotten a disease in his travel and almost died. They know that too. Everybody knows that the synagogue has taken an opposite position to the church and Christians everywhere are being forced out of the synagogue and coming out from under the protection of the legal religion of Judaism. And everybody's not sure what's going to happen there. Some are already being persecuted for their faith in Christ. In addition to all these things that happen because of the external pressures and the culture that is against the Christian faith, there is turmoil inside these new churches. They're having differences of opinion about really key issues like the one that Paul has just described in the first part of this chapter where he says, watch out for dogs, people for whom the grace of God is just not enough. And in order to really be saved, you've got to keep some laws. And there are folks who are Gentiles who are now sort of becoming like Jews and performing the religious rituals that were part of being a child of Abraham. And there is confusion in the church. Well, let's see. People in trouble, folks that you love are getting sick, nearly dying. The outside culture doesn't understand what you articulate. And even inside the church, 
There are differences of opinion and strife and conflicts and sometimes a party spirit. Sort of sounds like today. Maybe it sounds like some of the things that discourage you. Sickness that comes on unexpectedly. People that you love who are in trouble and you don't understand why. And maybe sometimes you say, God, why do you let this happen? The apostle is writing to say to you, press on. Press on. You say, how do I press on? Well, you press on toward what you prize. Paul writes here, I press on toward the mark for the prize. He has his eye fixed on the goal. He has a passion for the prize. He wants to be a winner in the Christian life. He wants to break the tape at the end of the run. He wants to finish his course having kept the faith. And he's got his eye fixed on it. You too must have a passion for the prize. Paul in one place describes this prize in athletic terms and he says in the Olympic Games these guys strive very with such great effort and they train for months and expend all kind of energy in order at the end to get a corruptible crown he calls it or a laurel wreath that fades away you've heard of the run for the roses haven't you you know that the run for the roses is the longest running athletic competition in these United States, the Kentucky Derby, the greatest horse race on the planet. And if you have the discipline and the heart to win this race with a horse that is a great athlete, at the end they will put that horse in the winner's circle and you will receive a blanket of roses 600 roses in this blanket and in the middle of it at the very peak a rose they call the crown that points upward and symbolizes the heart and strength and courage that it takes to win this race a reporter called it the run for the roses back in the 1920s and so has been its name since then. Paul says some people run for the roses, but the roses fade. We run for a, an incorruptible crown that can never be taken away. A passion for the prize is part of what God calls us to have, and then a determination in the midst of resistance. When I say press on, you can imagine that there's some kind of resistance through which you are pressing. There's some kind of conflict that's going on. You're having to overcome resistance and maybe cross barriers in order to get there. Press on is about you being determined that you're going to go forward even though there is resistance. And there's always resistance. Malala Yousafzai is 16 years old. She was marching on behalf of the education of girls in Pakistan when terrorists shot her in the head. She recovered to speak at the United Nations only a couple weeks ago, and she said there to the crowd, the terrorism 
They thought that they would change our aims and stop our ambitions. But nothing changed in my life except this. Weakness, fear, and hopelessness died. Strength, power, and courage were born. And she has become a symbol of the power of a young generation that is willing to stand up against the resistance and the terrorism and seek goals that are noble and true. If you are ever to attain what God has called you to do in your life, you are going to have to press on when troubles come, when pressures come. A determination in your heart to overcome resistance and stay true to your call. When I was 16 years old, I plowed a field. A farmer hired me and he gave me a 700 farmall tractor with a seven-prong chisel and I drug it through 200 acres in the bottom land of the Colorado River. It was so hard in that dry country that by the time I had dragged that tool through 200 acres, I could look back and see that I'd turned that entire field into clods the size of bowling balls. It took me nine days to do it. And then he gave me a disc plow. And for another number of days, I drug that traditional plow that you think about. I drug it through that field and knocked up all those clods. And after I had plowed the field with the disc, he gave me a drag. And I dragged a heavy implement through that field for days until it was smooth. And then he gave me a planter, a drill they call it, with all these multiple little shovels on it, one after the other. And above each shovel, a tube full of grain, of seed, this time wheat. And when you put that drill in the ground, it digs a furrow, and right behind each little shovel, the, drain, the grain falls in the ground. And I knew when I got that planter, I would have to plow straight. Somehow I was going to have to go through that great big expanse of brown and make those rows straight because this grain was coming up. And every little bobble that I made along the way would show up when the grain came up. So I fixed my eye, and this is literally how I did it. I fixed my eye as I sat in that tractor all the way across that field to a tree far on the other side. And when I dragged that planter through, I kept my eye on that tree. And if I did not depart from that trajectory, when I got done, the furrow was straight. That's what you do with the prize if you take your eye off the prize, off the mark that God has given you, there'll be wobbles in your journey and detours in your travel. But if you have your eye fixed as the Apostle Paul did on the goal that was set before you and you press on toward that goal, no matter what comes your way, you will plow a straight furrow and plant a straight row. And God will give your life maximum impact as you press on toward what you prize. Take hold of what holds you. He says, I press toward the mark to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. I couldn't read that 
take hold of the prize without thinking about Drew Brees holding the Lombardi trophy. Before he ever got that trophy in his hands, that trophy held his heart, right? (laughs) He wanted that and the team wanted that and I guarantee you, if I go talk to Drew Brees today, He's got the Lombardi trophy in his mind again. It's what he wants. That locker room is full of focus. They want to take hold of the Lombardi trophy again at the end of this season, and we all hope they do, right? We want the Saints to be on top when this thing's over, all right? So he took hold of that Lombardi trophy like we must take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. And you say, well, why? What did Jesus take hold of me for? And I want you to get that picture in your mind, by the way, because too often you think about you're holding on to God and your grip is slipping and you can just barely hold on to to Jesus because he's going to get away. But Jesus took hold of you. That's good news, okay? Reverse that picture in your mind. When you get in trouble, think Jesus has got a grip on me and he won't let go. He's taken hold of you, but for what purpose? What is that thing to which uh, he draws you? Number one, I would say this that he is drawing you toward the glory of God. He has taken hold of you, as Paul says in Philippians, so that in the ages to come, he might show the riches of his grace in his kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. In other words, God is exalting his grace and exalting his glory through your life. That's why God took hold of you. That's why Jesus took hold of you. So that in the ages to come, when you're walking down the streets of heaven, the angels will take note and say, isn't it amazing that David Crosby's here? Who would have thought it? That's God, that's grace, that's his glory. So you'll be a trophy of his grace through all eternity when you are noted in heaven's streets for all the ages to come. The magnificence of his grace exalted in you. Jesus took hold of you for the glory of God that you might be a trophy of his grace. And he took hold of you as he took hold of Paul for a very particular and personal reason. Paul knew after God got hold of him that he was to be a missionary that he was to take the gospel to people who had never heard, which he was going to do, and that his call was to the Gentiles, which was peculiar, a strange thing. But that's what God wanted him to do. So Peter was called to the Jews, and Paul was called to the Gentiles. And with every fiber of his being, he fulfilled that very personal, individual call for which Jesus took hold of him and plucked him out of his space on the Damascus Road. Now, Jesus has taken hold of you not only for a great and grand goal, which is the glory of God, to be a trophy of his grace, but he has also taken hold of you for a very particular and personal reason. There's something about your gifts and abilities and your calling that is absolutely unique to you. Now, I have shared my unique calling with you in a previous message. From Philippians chapter 2, by the way, God has called me here to help God's people shine like stars as they hold forth the word of life. That's, That's my particular calling. But I believe that every child of God, everybody 
who is saved by the grace of Christ has their own particular calling and you must discover yours because it is the reason for which Christ takes hold of you. Not everybody will do this vocationally. Many of us work out our particular and personal calling in all the different vocations of life. But we commit those vocations unto God. We do as Epaphroditus and Paul did. We pour our lives out for the sake of the gospel, whatever our occupation might be. And in so doing, everything that comes our way is attributed to the grace and power of God. So we live in the presence and power of God day by day as we work out our individual calling. Take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. Take hold of what holds you. And forget what lies behind. Paul writes, forgetting the things that lie behind. Reaching toward the things that lie ahead. I cannot emphasize to you how important it is that you have a good forgetter. You need to be able to forget some things. That ugly past. Forget it. Paul has already shared some of his ugly past with us in this letter. He's already said, talk about zeal. I persecuted the church. And that little phrase drew up from his heart all kind of scenes with Christians in shackles and dragged into the jails and Stephen dying in the streets of Jerusalem, stoned by the mob. This is part of the apostle's story. And some people get captured by their ugly past and they can't go forward because of it. When I was a boy, my father made sure that we saw these United States. And when I was in my later teens, I'd already been in 27 of the United States. So for thousands of miles, as I grew up, I kept my nose pressed against a window and watched the world go by. From Montana to Wyoming to Texas to Georgia to Kentucky, I watched the world go by. And I loved it. It was exciting to me to see what was coming up next. The farms and the windmills and the buildings and the valleys and the, and the staggering mountains and canyons in the west. And I learned something as I watched life go by. If I turned around and looked back, I'd miss something spectacular that was just now coming my way. And so I wouldn't follow things and just keep looking back as they disappeared into the distance. I wanted to see what was next and make sure I got a good look at it. On the interstate here in I-10, I hope that you are not the one who has a fender bender before I get to you, okay? Because if you have a fender bender on that interstate, there is a high probability that there's going to be another one after that. Why is that? Because people are rubbernecking. That's why. Have you ever heard of rubbernecking? It slows down both directions on the interstate when somebody has an accident and there's blue lights a-flashing. 
Why do people do that? As soon as they start looking back, they run into the person in front of them who has slowed down also to look back. It's the most dangerous thing you do. It's trying to look back when you're supposed to be going forward and keeping an eye on the road. And it is a metaphor for life, forgetting the things that are behind, looking forward and reaching forward to the things that are ahead. That's what you must do. You must, if you're going to win, you must embrace the future. Have you ever seen a man run the 100-meter dash and the whole time look over his shoulder? Now, I know that most recent fast Jamaican that won, won it, the world, world champion, when he got right there at the last step, he looked back, see who was coming, you know. But you don't run it that way. You keep your eye on the goal. You don't look back. You look forward if you want to win. It is a principle. You must put it in your heart. You must put it in your life. You cannot let your ugly past capture you and rob you of your future. There are beautiful things God wants to do now in your life. And if you are captured by the ugly past and lamenting it and bitter and angry at all the ugly things that people did to you, you will miss God's new work in your life in this day. I guarantee you you're going to miss it. God's at work in you. He's, in, he's at work in your family, but you can't see it because you're not looking and you're not listening. You're captured by an ugly past. Some of you are captured by a glorious past a successful past when you achieved great victories and things went your way and you climbed the mountains and sailed the oceans and life was good and life worked out like you expected it and things were wonderful and then surprise trouble and tragedy came your way and you aged into a person who lives in the past instead of in the present. The glorious past has captured you. You can't stop thinking about how life used to be and how good it was back then. One of our key values here is that we embrace the future. I hear so many Christians who lament the future and embrace the past. They act as if the past was perfect and the future is a mess. If you are trapped in that mindset, I want to say to you something. I think you're wrong and I think your perspective is unbiblical. I don't believe that's how Jesus wants you to live thinking that the past was perfect and the future is a mess. I've concluded after these years on the planet that every generation is a mess. <laughs> All right? And I think you will agree if you really think about it. We can't idealize yesterday because it was not ideal. And what we must do is embrace what God has given us in the present, and do what God has called us to do and keep our eye on the goal. I don't want to rust out. I want to wear out. I want to burn out. And the only way I can do that is to keep going forward, pressing forward, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. 
live up to what you have. That's number four. It's a little bit of a change for the apostle in the way he has tenored this passage. Pretty much this passage has been about going forward to what lies ahead. And then he says, live up to what you already have. A pretty pointed reminder that we have already achieved so many wonderful things in Christ. We already have the Holy Spirit living within us. We already know that heaven is our home. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. We already know that one of these days he's coming back for you. I'll come back and receive you to myself. Jesus made that promise. I think of it very often. Think of what you already have. You already have a family called the church. Paul uses the term again here, brothers and sisters, as he talks to the church. You have this family of faith. Think of what you already have. The resources God has already given you. In Christ, the riches of his glory. Live up to what you already have. You may think that your resources are gone. And there's no way forward for you. But I tell you that the good shepherd does not lead us into box canyons and he can rescue anybody no matter what their plight. Don't give up in your current circumstance. God is able to touch your life and give you a new future and maybe a different plan if the old one's messed up. You keep your eyes on the goal and press on toward the prize somebody needs to hear that today and put it right here quitting is awful business Paul uses an athletic metaphor here and I did a little bit of athletics one time I ran a half mile in stiff competition as a new student at Star High School and the coach thought I looked like I was a runner. So without training or conditioning, he put me in this half-mile run. And they fired the gun, and these people took off. And I looked down that row, and every one of their legs was longer than I was tall. I thought, this is not good news. And those guys took off from the starting blocks, and I mean, they hit it going fast. They were running. I was thinking to myself, fellas, this is a half-mile now. What are you doing? I didn't know you run 110 miles and you break to the curb. And I broke to the curb dead last. And it got worse. <laughs> I burned it all just trying to keep up the first 110 yards. I went around that first lap. And I was behind the fellow in front of me and the last person in the race. And I came around to the backside of that track. And I thought I was going to die. My legs were like lead. My heart was pumping out of my chest. My lungs were hurting, and I thought, I am going to die. <laughs> I got around to the last turn, and I looked up there, and everybody had finished the race but me. And the stands, they were being unkind. <laughs> yeah. The referee is standing at the finish line, swinging his whistle. <laughs> I just quit. Yeah, I quit. 
I picked up that little blue track shoe, took it off of that black cinder block, and stepped right on that green infield. <laughs> and when I did, I was disqualified. I felt a little better. <laughs> but the race was over for me. And then it got to dawning on me what I had done. I felt awful about quitting that race. My wife, Janet, she was there at that track meet. She said, oh, don't worry about it. But I couldn't quit. And the coach came up and he saw, saw that I was in distress and he patted me on the back, Coach Tidwell, and he said, you're never going to quit again, are you, Crosby? <laughs> I said, no, sir, I'm not. I'm glad I learned about quitting on that high school track field. Because I determined then, as a boy, I was going to finish what I started. And I notice not everybody finishes what they start in life. There are folks who give up on the race God gives them to run. They sit down and they retire. They pull themselves out of the race. The only way you actually know they're supposed to be running is that they call themselves a Christian. But that's about it. All they got left is the label. And every good thing that ever happened in their Christian life is something they used to do. They used to teach Sunday school. They used to teach the Bible. They used to pray every day. They used to study the Scriptures. They used to read the Scriptures. They used to be at the church. They used to go to worship. They used to sing in the choir. They used to play in the band. Everything about them that was significant spiritually is something they used to do. What are you doing now? I'm sitting on the sidelines. It's somebody else's turn. I remember a prophet in the Old Testament that felt that way. Elijah led that great charge on the mountain. 400 prophets of Baal were killed. God sent fire down from heaven and burned up the sacrifices. And a wicked woman sent a little note and said, I'm going to kill you like you killed my prophets. And Elijah took off into the wilderness, ran as hard as he could and as fast as he could, and God found him holed up in a place somewhere, fed him and took him to the mountain of the Lord and put him in a cave. And God called him out, Elijah, to the side of the mountain. And a fire came across that mountain that burned everything there, but God wasn't in the fire. And a wind came across that mountain that tore the trees and rolled the rocks, and God wasn't in the wind. And an earthquake shook that mountain, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was this still, small voice that said to God's prophet, What are you doing here, Elijah? Oh, you don't know what I've been through, God. They've killed everybody that ever tried to serve. I'm the only one left. Lord, just take my life. And the still small voice came again and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I want to leave you with that question. What are you doing? here is everything in the past have you set it all aside did you get discouraged in the race you thought you were going to die 
You stepped off the track. You disqualified yourself. You sat down on the bench and said, let somebody else do it. Press on toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Bow with me, please. I don't know what God wants to do in you, but I know this passage is intended. This word is intended for somebody here who's discouraged and life's been hard. Times have been difficult. Conflict has come. You've had surprising resistance to your Christian life and witness. And the Holy Spirit wants to say to you, what are you doing? Lord, I pray that we will hear you loud and clear as your people today, that you will stir us up as your word intends to do. And God, that we will respond to the truth that you speak to us to press on toward the mark. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.